Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with and Musa Tabisolohoko and Figle Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa's court confirms amount President Zuma should repay for upgrades to his private home, and the Democratic Party nominates Hillary Clinton for U.S. presidency. In economics, Zimbabwe to introduce command agriculture to shore up maize production. And in sports news, Ghana's Midiama earned first Confederations Cup win. The first at the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. The Niger Delta Avengers militant group has claimed responsibility for an attack on a gas pipeline belonging to the state-run oil company in southern Nigeria. The group says they blew up the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation's gas pipeline in Ibom State. The Avengers have claimed a string of devastating attacks against the NNPC. They want oil majors to leave the Niger Delta, blaming them for contributing to widespread poverty and underdevelopment of the region. The Avengers have also rejected a government truce to end the violence. More than 100 secondary schools have been set on fire in less than a month in Kenya. The alleged arsonists are either students or teachers. Hundreds of students are facing criminal charges over the same incidents. The causes of the arson attacks are not clear. The government will hold emergency meetings on Wednesday to understand how to end the crisis. SADC has officially launched an international call for 2.4 billion US dollars to mitigate against the effects of the worst drought ever in southern Africa. The appeal for humanitarian assistance was made in the capital of Botswana, Gaborone. SADC chairperson Ian Hammer says they are extremely concerned about food security with millions of people going hungry after crops failed. Hammer says some international donors have pledged assistance. In South Africa, the biggest grain producer in the region, it is estimated that the maize harvest resulted in approximately 7.1 million metric tons, which is about 4 million tons less than average. Several countries, including Lesotho and Swaziland, have recorded over a 50% drop in their crop harvests. Hundreds of people are expected to gather in Bromfontein in Johannesburg for an albinism awareness march. The I Am Not My Skin campaign says they're marching to highlight the fight against the killing and mutilation of people with albinism. The campaign spokesperson Nkosanati Lamini says people living with albinism are increasingly at risk of being trafficked, killed and sold for witchcraft. In some places in South Africa, it's still believed that uh, we bring luck once we 
get killed and we made Muti. So when I travel sometimes, I don't feel that much free because I'm looking over my shoulder and looking out for those type of people. So we're trying to eradicate that and make people aware that it's not like that. It's just a myth and misconception. We're just like everyone else. Hillary Clinton is officially the Democratic Party's nominee for president in November and will be the party's standard bearer in the November election against Donald Trump. After concerns about a revolt by some of former rival Senator Bernie Sanders' supporters, a roll call state by state vote produced the required votes to put Clinton over the top, making her the first woman to lead a major political party into a general election in the United States history. Sean Bryce-Beast reports. A historic moment for the Democratic Party that now has as its last two presidential nominees a black man from Chicago and a white woman from New York. And while this was Clinton's moment, it was also a day to pay tribute to the groundbreaking campaign of Bernie Sanders, who continues to have strong support here in the city of brotherly love and whose magnanimous move to suspend the rules of the convention and immediately nominate Mrs. Clinton was broadly recognized as a significant moment to push for party unity. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the fre- frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. And today is Wednesday, July the 27th, with the 209th day of 2016, with 157 days left in the year. In our top story, Hillary Clinton has made history by becoming the first woman to be officially nominated to lead the tickets of a major political party into a general election in the United States. In an official roll call state-by-state vote at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia yesterday, both Senator Bernie Sanders and Clinton's names were placed on the ballot, but as expected, it was former Secretary of State who prevailed a despite vocal support for her former rival from Vermont. And in the spirit of party unity and his final act as a presidential candidate, Senator Sanders moved to suspend the procedural rules and for the convention to officially nominate Clinton as its candidate. Show and Bryce Peace reports. It was political theatre at its very best. Strong support in the auditorium for the groundbreaking campaign of Senator Sanders. But this was Hillary Clinton's moment. And he was magnanimous about it. Madam Chair, I move that the convention suspend the procedural rules. I move that all votes, all votes cast by delegates be reflected in the official record. And I move that Hillary Clinton be selected as the nominee of the Democratic Party for President of the United States. Marsha Fudge then took over as the presiding chair of the Democratic National Convention. Thank you, Senator Sanders. 
Senator Sanders has moved in the spirit of unity to suspend the rules. to suspend the rules and nominate Hillary Clinton by acclamation as the presidential candidate of the Democratic Party. Is there a second? All in favor of the motion say aye. And so it came to pass that a woman would finally lead a major party into an election in the 240-year history of this country. Kelly Jacobs is a Clinton delegate from Mississippi. So excited. I'm so thrilled. I know a lot of men don't understand this, but it's so important to us women to see a strong woman takes injustice, uh, hits against her, and still rises above it all and is very thoughtful and intelligent and qualified to be president. What did you make of the Bernie or Bust uh, supporters this week? They were very vocal over the last uh, 20, 24 to 48 hours. What do you, what, what's your message to them? You're young. You'll get over it. Dr. Ruby Funches is a state party official from Mississippi. I am ecstatic. I am so proud of her. That means that there are, there's a chance that other young girls can aspire to become a leader just as she has. What did you think about the magnanimous approach we saw from Senator Bernie Sanders this afternoon? Uh, Wasn't that just the the cherry on the cake? It really was because this party is about unity and that was an effort to unify the Democrats and show that we are all in this together and we are going to work together and support each other. Even some of the unrelenting Sanders supporters appeared to be finally embracing the party's nominee President of the San Diego Progressive Democrats, Jose Caballero. At this moment, we have one thing to do, and that is to make sure we stay true to our values and make sure we keep fighting for the things that we all fought for with Bernie Sanders, which is affordable health care, education, no TPP, especially no TPP, and environmental regulations, and basically equality and dignity for all human beings. So this is about the party platform. It's about the the progressive agenda rather than who the nominee is. Yes, at this point, it has to be. Following in the footsteps of Barack Obama's historic nomination eight years ago, Hillary Clinton, having failed once before, continues the historic trajectory of a party that now has as its last two presidential nominees a black man from Chicago and a white woman from New York. She will accept her party's nomination on Thursday night. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in Philadelphia. In a full-throat endorsement, former United States President Bill Clinton has called his history-making wife the best change-maker he's ever known. As the keynote speaker on the night, his wife would officially become the first woman to formally win the presidential nomination of a major U.S. political party. The former president spoke about the days when he met his wife at university and described the force she would become in their life together, her career and his raising their daughter and running for high office. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the 42nd President of the United States, Bill Clinton. With Hillary Clinton claiming the nomination earlier in the day with the endorsement of former rival Bernie Sanders, it was left to the 42nd President of the United States to add the finishing touches 
to a historic day for women in this country. I have lived a long, full, blessed life. It really took off when I met and fell in love with that girl in the spring of 1971. When I was president, I worked hard to give you more peace and shared prosperity, to give you an America where nobody is invisible or counted out. But for this time, Hillary is uniquely qualified to seize the opportunities and reduce the risk we face. And she is still the best darn changemaker I have ever known. President Clinton reminisced about the three times he had to propose before she said yes, the day his daughter Chelsea was born, knowing she had the best mother in the world, and the taskmaster his wife was as she tirelessly worked to change lives, including his own, for the better. This is a really important point. This is a really important point for you to take out of this convention. If you believe in making change from the bottom up, if you believe the measure of change is how many people's lives are better, you know it's hard and some people think it's boring. Speeches like this are fun. Actually doing the work is hard. So people say, well, we need to change. She's been around a long time. She sure has. And she's sure been worth every single year she's put into making people's lives better. And to cap it off, a surprise the arena was not expecting. A video link that began with a collage of former presidents, all men, only to end with a live link to Hillary Clinton herself in New York. We just put the biggest crack in that glass ceiling yet. Thanks to you and to everyone who's fought so hard to make this possible. This is really your victory. This is really your night. And if there are any little girls out there who stayed up late to watch, let me just say, I may become the first woman president, but one of you is next. So the business side of this convention is now complete. The Sanders supporters have accepted their loss in this election. The delegates have voted and Mrs. Clinton has made history. But the political theater of this convention is just starting. President Barack Obama will be here Wednesday, while Hillary Clinton will do the honors of accepting her historic nomination on Thursday night. I'm Sherman Bricebees in Philadelphia. A historic nomination indeed, and this will go down in the history books. The first female presidential candidate to be nominated by one of the only one of those big parties in the United States. Well, going back in time to today in 1975, the British government closed its consulate and evacuated British citizens from Angola due to increasing tensions in Angola with Cuban forces fighting on behalf of the MPLA and South African troops for the UNITA. That was today in history in the year 1975. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 
605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now here in South Africa, the clock has started ticking for South Africa's President Jacob Zuma to pay back monies for non-security upgrades to his Ngandla home. The Constitutional Court has formally accepted a Treasury report detailing the amounts the President is personally liable for. Treasury found that President Zuma is liable for 87.94% of the costs. These costs relate to the swimming pool, visitors' centre, amphitheatre, cattle crawl and chicken run. Candace Nolan reports. The highest court in the land has spoken. A unanimous constitutional court found that the president second-guessed the public protector. Chief Justice Mohueng Mohueng read out the court's judgment in March. The president should have decided whether to comply with the public protector's remedial action or not. If not then much more than his mere contentment with the correctness of the report generated at his instance was called for. Only after a court of law would have set aside the findings and the remedial action taken by the public protector would it have been open to the president to disregard the public protector's report. His difficulty here is that he did not challenge the report through a judicial process. He appears to have been content with the apparent vindication of his position by the minister's re- favorable recommendations and considered himself to have been lawfully absolved of liability. Thus emboldened by the minister's conclusion and a subsequent resolution by the National Assembly to the same effect, the president neither paid for the non-security installations nor reprimanded the ministers involved in the Nganda project. This non-compliance persisted until these applications were launched and the matter was set down for hearing. And this is where and how the public protector's remedial action was second-guessed. Ahead of the court-appointed deadline, Treasury submitted its report on the 27th of June. The public protector had said that the president should pay a reasonable percentage of the reasonable cost of the five non-security related features. These included the swimming pool, cattle crawl, amphitheater and visitors centre. But the court did not tell Treasury how to calculate this percentage. National Treasury commissioned two independent firms of quantity surveyors. They each compiled market-related cost estimates for each of the security features using information supplied by the Department of Public Works and photographs and information collected during their own site visits. The South African Institute of Civil Engineering and the Association of South African Quantity Surveyors volunteered their services and set up a panel to moderate the cost estimates by the independent firms. The six-member panel included two professional engineers and two professional quantity surveyors. Their approach was intended to ensure that any cost estimates used by National Treasury in compliance with a court order would be within the limits of acceptable professional standards. The panel was of the view that a control centre on the ground floor of the visitors' centre is the only security-related element of the five upgrades identified by the public protector. This control centre is used by the police and has been discounted from the final total cost estimate. In today's money, 
the five non-security-related features would reasonably have cost some 10 million rand. Treasury determined that President Zuma is liable for 87.94% of that cost as at June 2009. This means that the President is liable for 7,814,155 rands. One month later, and the justices of the Constitutional Court have now signified their approval of the Treasury report. President Zuma now has 45 court days to pay back the money. I'm Candace Nolan in Johannesburg. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Now more than 5,000 refugee children have reportedly vanished without trace after arriving in Italy last year and registering with the authorities. As a youthful exodus from troubled African states continues, Catania, an Italian city on the east coast of Sicily, is currently experiencing a surge in the arrival of child refugees, some as young as 12 years. It is believed that Cosa Nostra, the Sicilian mafia, is profiting from unaccompanied minors. Some of the criminals involved in the smuggling are also believed to be working inside reception centers such as the government-funded Caradimineo camp. This is Europe's largest migrant reception center. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by Itai Virui, spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration. Good morning, Itai, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. Uh, glad to be on the program. Now, Itai, is the Migration Agency aware of child refugees, especially unaccompanied minors, um, disappearing in Europe's refugee centres? We are indeed aware of uh, unaccompanied uh, child migrants and refugees who make the perilous journey from mostly North Africa to, to Italy, trying to make their way through Europe. Uh, the fact that they disappear is uh, nothing, I uh, suppose, unusual in that we know that when they arrive in Italy, most of them want to continue on to other destinations. And the reason why they do so soon after arrival is to avoid being registered, because once they are registered under EU uh, asylum laws, they are required to have their cases processed in Italy, or the first country, first European country that they reach. So. That way, if they move on very quickly, then they do not um, uh, fall under what is called the Dublin Two or Dublin Three Convention. Now, what about the ones who have been registered or who have registered themselves after arrival in in uh, Italy, but they've still disappeared? They still do. I mean, I suppose in in some cases, if you think of it, really, I mean, most of these children are coming to try and earn a living for themselves and obviously for their families. The idea is that once they get to Europe, they uh, find work, try and earn as much money as possible to send back home. But further, further on, I mean, the idea is to try and get some regular status, which then allows them to be reunited with family members back uh, back home. Uh, that usually takes a long time, if at all it comes to that. So it's it, it, it's quite a long process. So what usually happens then is that they uh, end up getting out of these centers. Uh, I mean, the, the center that you referred to uh, in Mineo, I've visited it. Uh, I was there last year. 
and it's really in, in the middle of nowhere. So in terms of the young people being able to access work, they actually have to travel quite a distance to Catania or other cities in Sicily. And as such, they, 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 what they usually do is that they just go out of these camps. I mean, these are not closed detention centers. They are actually open and quite vast camps. Uh, think of a, an old holiday camp which has been converted into, into a reception center. That's what most of them are. Now, Itai, um, let's speak about the unaccompanied minors from a Cara di Maneo uh, refugee camp uh, reportedly led to countries in the north, such as Britain and Germany. What could be the reasons for these particular countries? Is it uh, and, uh, making money and being able to sustain themselves and sending money back to their families in their countries of origin? Well, Lulu, the, the first thing really is to just say there is that they choose countries where they think they'll earn uh, uh, more money, uh, where there's a better chance of uh, success at what their main goal is, uh, being able to provide and support themselves and their families. What also happens in many, many cases is that these children are trying to be reunited with uh, family members, uh, whether parents or close relatives, who are already living in these countries, whether it's Britain, Germany, or Sweden, uh, mostly. And uh, the idea then is that if the through legal channels they've been unable to be reunited with, with, with families, uh, then they force the issue basically by traveling irregularly in this manner. And once they reach those destinations, the hope is that they, they are processed uh, and they end up getting some form of legal status to remain. So that's really the main reason. But they're quite a select country, as, as, as you've already noted, Britain and Germany being two of them, but also Sweden. Uh, I'll basically say uh, most of uh, Western Europe. So Italy and, Gem- and Greece, where they usually arrive, are usually just uh, transit countries for them. Now, it's said that uh, the Maneo camp should not be hosting child refugees, yet they're still brought in illegally. Can you clarify where exactly should they be hosted and uh, why Maneo camp is not um, suitable for children? Well, it certainly is not uh, suitable for children. As I said, I was there last year and uh, I was able to to spend a day uh, in this quite uh, vast camp. And Really, even though they have uh, social workers on site, they have other support structures, uh, it, it, it's certainly not fit for purpose for, for children. Remember, we're talking of some children as young as 12, and um, they need a specialist type of uh, care with particular, uh, particularly trained um, uh, social workers who know how to work with children. In most countries, they have uh, special centers for children. Uh, I used to work in one when I, was in, 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 uh, when I used to live in Ireland, and we had uh, specially trained uh, social workers who knew how to provide support to children. And I think uh, in this case, uh, the system is such that it has broken down to the point that these children are just brought into these camps, uh, and yet they should be in, in specialist camps where they'll get all the kind of support, they'll be able to access education, they'll be able to to to, to be provided with uh, support if they needed family reunification with their family members, whether in Italy or in other countries. So yes, they, they, they should be in, in other centers, but not the one in Mineo. Now, let's speak about the issue of, uh, uh, you know, children sort of the children disappearing and the issue of um, the mafia being involved what your take on this what are the reports exactly about this 
Well, this being Sicily, obviously we're talking of uh, uh, the Cosa Nostra, which is the Sicilian mafia. One thing that we should uh, obviously understand about the whole migration situation in Europe is that uh, criminal gangs are quite central to the whole smuggling operation of uh, how uh, these young people and older, you know, adults who are, who are making their way to Europe irregularly, they depend on these smugglers to, to get them to Europe um, to circumvent whatever whatever pro- um, protection there is. So obviously the likelihood of the mafia getting involved is, is, is an obvious one. I think figures have been quoted anything up to $60 billion uh, US dollars uh, per year being made uh, by these criminal gangs out of smuggling. So it's a huge uh, profitable business, if I can uh, call it that, uh, for, for these gangs. So it's, it's, it's no wonder that uh, if you're in Sicily, where most of these uh, young people, when they are rescued at sea, arrive, uh, arrive at, then Costa Nostra will be, will be involved in this. And obviously it's, it's, it's a worrying um, uh, situation. How it can be solved, I think we're, we're talking at a much, much bigger picture in terms of how you deal with, with the mafia, and, and that's obviously uh, even beyond my own scope of um, uh, you know, recognizing what mm. can be done. Yeah, mm. exactly. Now, firms and refugee centers looking after um, Italy's wave of migrants uh, receiving funding, but there are reports of mismanagement with the funds often. Uh, directed towards illegal activities that don't benefit the migrants. Your take on that? Well, this happens in quite uh, quite a few places. What usually happens is that uh, when uh, these uh, children and any other migrants or refugees are uh, sent to these reception centers, they receive uh, like tiny amounts of um, um, funds which uh, to help them, you know, day-to-day living expenses, you know, like getting soap, you know, basic things like that. So in this case, what seems to be happening is that instead of the money going to directly to the migrants, it's going to these criminal gangs. And what we have asked uh, or, or recommended as a solution is to allow uh, some of these uh, young people to be provided with vouchers. So instead of giving them cash, they can get vouchers to go and get soap and, 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 and you know things like that. Ultimately, if uh, they're over the age of 18, we've also recommended that they be uh, allowed to access employment. In many countries in Europe, uh, asylum seekers are not allowed to get gainful employment until their cases have been uh, approved. But we're saying that in terms of helping with integration and also perhaps even removing the burden on the taxpayer, they should be allowed to look after themselves and and by doing so they can... uh, be more integrated in the local community. So with children, obviously, the weekend, they cannot work uh, under international labor laws, but then what we recommend is that they be engaged in some activities that will lead to uh, employment once they turn 18. And now, finally, what needs to be done to improve um, the conditions of child migrants and refugees arriving in Europe? I'll say maybe let's take a step back first of all and, and look at the reasons why uh, child migrants and refugees are arriving in, in Europe in this very irregular manner. That needs to be looked at. Why are there no opportunities in their countries of origin? Why do they have to resort to this kind of uh, dangerous journeys and very uh, 
and, 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 and safe existence in these centers. So certainly we should start with that. And we're mostly talking of obviously West Africa, East Africa, you know, North African uh, countries where these kids are coming from. Once they arrive in Europe, obviously, we need to make sure that they are housed in camps where they get the adequate supports. I mean, quite a lot of these children are vulnerable. We're hearing more and more of uh, young uh, girls uh, who are being uh, brought into prostitution. We're hearing of uh, young young people in this manner being uh, forced into domestic servitude. So we need to ensure that they are protected and that uh, if they need family reunification, they can be reunited with family members elsewhere in Europe. That's what we need to do now. And uh, ultimately, you know, we'll be judged on whether we support these children or not. Itayu, we have to leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lulu. Have a good day. Thank you, you too. That was Itayu Virui, spokesperson for the International Organization on the Line Organization for Migration on the line from Geneva in Switzerland. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, more than 100 secondary schools have been set on fire in less than a month in Kenya. The Niger Delta Avengers Militant Group has claimed responsibility for an attack on a gas pipeline belonging to the state-run oil company in southern Nigeria. And Hillary Clinton is officially the Democratic Party's nominee for president in November and will be the party's standard bearer in the November election against Donald Trump. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Zimbabwe is to introduce command agricultures to shore up maize production. This as the country battles to overcome widespread drought that has affected 4 million Zimbabweans. Under a special program, the government will identify farms that will be required to produce maize for the next three years. It aims to reduce grain imports and improve food security. Shinganyoka has more from Harare. Zimbabwe says it will start identifying the 2,000 farmers required for the scheme immediately and that it will finance the seed chemicals, equipment, including tractors and irrigation, on a cost recovery basis. Zimbabwe's Vice President, Emerson Mnangagwa. The program targets to produce at least 2 million metric tons of maize grain on 400,000 hectares, out of which at least 200,000 hectares should be on irrigated land. Each farmer will be required to produce a minimum of five tons per hectare to pay back the loan. The farmers participating in this program should sign a performance contract for three consecutive summer growing seasons, commencing with the 2016-2017 summer season. All farms near water bodies shall be considered under this program. For utilization. Agricultural Minister Joseph Made. The 344 million relates to the direct operating inputs 
in addition to that, a hundred million will go directly to irrigation capital. Then 60 million will go to irrigation operating costs. Government statistics show that national food insecurity has risen from an average of 12% in 2011 to 42% in 2016, where 4 million people need food aid. Maize production has declined to 700,000 metric tons a year, a third of the production 10 years ago. The state's late payment of delivered grain has forced farmers to produce more lucrative crops such as tobacco. Zimbabwe says those producing other crops successfully won't be forced to go into the scheme. But if a farmer is near water and he does not want to go into the scheme, we put him where there is no water. <laughs> and they put those who are who can cooperate and put them near water because we want to use the water. Zimbabwe says it has five months of grain cover secured through imports and local purchases. It says most imports are coming in over the next two months where demand for grain is expected to peak. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Harare. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. The wife of late race car driver Gugu Zulu Ditsejo has thanked South Africa for the support and condolence messages she unexpectedly took to the podium to express her gratitude yesterday during Zulu's memorial service at the Kayalami racetrack in Midrand. The fastest brother in Africa died last week while attempting to summit Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania as part of a trek for Mandela Initiative. Noma Bulani attended the memorial service and filed this report. Hey, Google, where are you now? Are you far away from us? I don't think so. I think you hear wiping out tears. Sporting a brave face, Letsiho Zulu stood up with a faint smile to thank everyone who shared messages of support and love since the news of her husband's passing broke last week Monday. Looking at this picture throughout the whole service, and I don't know about you, but sitting there, it looks like he's been looking at me throughout the whole service. I was married to an amazing man. And I just wanted to get up on stage and say thank you very much. I shared him with all of you. Zulu's mother, Buleng, says her son always knew he would be a great driver. When he was six, when we always ask a child for a dream career, Gugu said, I'm going to be a driver. And to me, it was taxi driver who <laughs> said no I said cooks a bus driver 
No, a driver. Okay, train maybe, Mamsi? No, a driver. Little did I know there was this giant. It's not just Kogozulu's family who've lost a husband and a brother, but the country's motorsport fraternity was also dealt a devastating blow. Zulu was not just an exceptional and committed race car driver. He had a light heart, a light touch, and a heavy foot. He was a philanthropist, described as one of this nation's greatest servants. Zulu worked with youth from disadvantaged backgrounds, introducing them to adventure sports. He died while trying to raise money for girls who couldn't afford sanitary hygiene products. Racer Stephen Watson recalls how it was important for Zulu to help those wanting to follow in his tracks. You were a selfless soldier. Just two weeks ago, you came into the office with a resume of a young aspiring driver and said, how can we help this guy? Let's meet with his parents, even if all we can give is guidance and offer introductions. You were determined that others should benefit from the lessons learned on the road you had traveled. The Zulu family also took the opportunity to clear the rumors that they blame part of the trek for Mandela team for the race car driver's death. Team leader and mountaineers Musiso Vilani told the media upon their return from Tanzania that he felt responsible for Zulu's death. Family spokesperson Tiriso Mutluhelwa. As the family, at no stage are we accusing anyone. And we are not saying there's anyone who made a mistake. Busiso is not God. All people who are the medical people are not God. When we talked with them, we mentioned to the bosses so that doctors, surgeons, the, the, the skilled people, and under the very knives or under whatever medical support that will be there, people still die. Hey, Tsehori assured attendees that even though half of the adventure couple was no more, she would continue with an adventurous lifestyle in his memory. He's up there looking down at me and saying, my love, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. But I know you can go on. You can keep the flag flying. And that's what I'm going to do. <sighs> Thank you very much, everybody. The memorial service wrapped up with VW driving Zulu's wife, Litsiko, on an honorary lap around the racetrack in his racing car. And if it had been the fastest brother in Africa behind the wheel, it might have sounded something like this, as recounted by friend and fellow racer, Vusignen. I could hear the other drivers were driving. There comes Kuku. Take it down the mine shaft. Going down. Gugu's final lap. His funeral will be held on Thursday at the Rema Bible Church in Randburg. I'm Noma Polani in Johannesburg. Because I know I don't belong here in Channel Africa has gone mobile.
You can now download the mobile app for your Android device on Google Play and keep listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. With South Africa having recently celebrated the 40th anniversary of June 16, the Standard Bank Joy of Jazz Festival last week embarked on Geleza Kleva and Learn, an intensive three-day music industry development project aimed at budding young musicians. The Standard Bank Joy of Jazz Festival aims to equip aspirant youth with guidelines on how to hone their musical talents while also building solid business acumen. Learners were exposed to various music dis- disciplines and the business of music. To find out more on this, Khomotomopulani spoke to Concord Ngabinde, facilitator of the Geleza Clever initiative. The Geleza Clever and Learn workshops are part of the Standard Bank Joy of Chairs Festival. Every year when the festival happens in September, the festival runs youth development workshops for artists. So all the artists that perform at the festival get to conduct workshops. But there was such a need and a demand for this that the festival felt it is good to do this during the year as well, maybe leading to the festival. And that's how Keleza Clever and Land came into being. Um, and this is the third year in a row that we're doing these workshops. And the essence of the workshops really is to empower developing artists, particularly musicians, with the knowledge of the business side of the industry. Most artists tend to focus on just the music itself. But when it comes to how they get the music out there, how it's protected, how they're supposed to collect their royalties when the music is being used. Most artists tend to lack in that uh, area. So we thought it was a a good thing to do to really empower artists and, and really make them understand that music is a business and it has to be treated as such. You mentioned that the initiative has been running for a couple of years. How has it done uh, previously? It's done very well. I mean, the the demand actually is growing. People are asking us to bring it to other provinces. For us, what we mean by doing well is also the feedback that we get from these young people. When they, they say, you know, the information they get from the workshops are things that they never knew about or they never understood. I mean, imagine someone who is a composer but has no idea of what music publishing is. And that was Concord Ngabinde, facilitator of the Geleza Clever Initiative, speaking to Komodzomo Pulane. Our economic update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Thanks, Balungile. Zimbabwe is to introduce command agriculture to shore up maize production. This as the country battles to overcome widespread drought that has affected 4 million Zimbabweans. Under a special program, the government will identify farms that will be required to produce maize for the next three years. It says to reduce grain imports and improve uh, food security, this will have to be done in a proper manner. Shingai Nyok reports. Zimbabwe says it will start identifying the 2,000 farmers required for the scheme immediately and that it will finance the seed, 
chemicals, equipment, including tractors and irrigation, on a cost recovery basis. More than 15,000 workers in the South African petroleum sector are expected to go on strike this week after wage talks with employers failed. Labor union Sapau says the workers will down tools from Thursday. The work stoppage could further damage the economy, which is forecast by the South African Revenue Bank to remain stagnant this year. Demands for above-inflation pay rises also look set to aggravate the bank's dilemma of how to keep a lid on inflation. South Africa's Finance Minister Pravin Gordon says South African Airways requires a new board. Speaking at a Johannesburg Chamber of Commerce and Industry meeting in Santin, Gordon said SAA needed an experienced management team. He says a turnaround strategy should be implemented for the airline to be able to continue. Gordon's statement comes as the stalemate between him and SAA board chair Tutumieni is rapidly driving SAA to total collapse. Gordon has requested three extensions for the deadline of SAA's annual report. Ethiopian Airlines brand new Airbus A350AXWB touchdown at the OR Tambo International Airport in Johannesburg last Friday. The airline, regarded as Africa's fastest growing, took delivery of the A350 in France last month, the first of 14 of the model that will be deployed by Ethiopian Airlines in coming years. The airline's regional manager for Southern Africa, Abel Alemu. There is a huge excitement from our side. The Ethiopian Airlines has been the leader in African aviation market for 70 years now. We celebrated our 17th anniversary in April this year. So this A350 is a new addition in our fleet. We have ordered 14 of them from Airbus. We received the first A350 in June, as you said it, and it operated its first flight to Johannesburg or River Tambo International Airport on Friday. The U.S. dollar currently trades at 14.36 to the South African rand, 10.64 in Botswana, 9.68 in Zambia, 7.6 British pound, 9.6 euro, gold $1,319, platinum $1,086 per ounce, brand crude $44.75 a barrel. You are listening to Channel Africa. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Fig Lelingwati. In our sports update this hour, we're kicking off with football news where the South African Under-23 national team head coach Owen Dagama is hoping to at least play two international training matches in Brasilia ahead of their opening game in the Olympics against host Brazil next week. The Gama is targeting the likes of Nigeria and South Korea for friendly matches in preparation for Group A fixtures against the host Iraq and Denmark. And the FIFA president Gianni Infantino met with Nigeria's president Muhammadu Buhari on Monday at the presidential villa in the country's capital Abuja to discuss football development in Nigeria. 
After the meeting, which lasted about 40 minutes, Infantino addressed journalists on the need to work more on the organizational structure, training centers, and improving the framework of football in the West African country. The future of football development in the world in general is not uh, something that uh, uh, can be answered for the whole world, but needs and necessitates a tailor-made approach. The needs in Nigeria are not the same as the needs in other African countries, uh, so we need to specifically see what uh, we can do here. During the news conference, Infantino spoke to journalists on Russia escaping the International Olympic Committee's blanket ban for Rio Olympics. The International Olympic Committee, IOC, has rejected calls for Russia to be banned from next month's Rio Olympics over the nation's doping record, offering athletes a lifeline by ruling that decisions on individual competitors will be left to the international sports federations. I'm not a member of the IOC. Uh, I'm just the FIFA president. Uh, and uh, I don't know, of course, the, the details of uh, why the IOC has come to, to this decision. This is something for, for the IOC. As far as FIFA is concerned, we have, of course, our own anti-doping programs for our own competitions. And uh, we are following a zero-tolerance policy in terms of anti-doping programs in football. A brace from Mohamed Abbas helped Mediama SC secure the first victory in Group A of the CAF. Confederations Cup after beating Young Africans 3-1 at the Sikondi Takoradi Stadium on Tuesday night. The win sees Mediama SC up to five points from the four games alongside the M.O. Bejaya, who have only played three games and are in action tonight against T.P. Mazembe of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Young Africans are yet to win a game and prop up the bottom of Group A with one point from four games. TP Mazembe topped the Group A standings with seven points from three games and could guarantee qualification for the semi-finals of the competition with a win over M.O. Bejaya tonight. On to cricket news. Kahiso Rabada's stellar 2015-2016 season has been rewarded as a young pro-tier speedster walked away with the major honors at the annual Cricket South Africa's Awards in Johannesburg last night. Rabada was named South African Cricketer of the Year one day international cricketer of the year as well as test cricketer of the year despite only bursting onto the international scene at the beginning of the season he took 30 wickets in 11 odi matches at an average of 20.13 and an economy rate of 4.83 his test haul was equally impressive with 24 wickets in six matches at an average of 24.70 His best bowling figures of 13 for 144 were taken against England at the Centurion early in the 2016 where he became the youngest South African to record 10 wickets in a test match. Rabada also won South Africa's Players' Player of the Year Award, the Delivery of the Year Award, as well as the South African Fans Cricketer of the Year. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. 
Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. South African court confirms Ahmad President Zuma should repay for upgrades to his private home and Democratic Party nominates Hillary Clinton for U.S. presidency. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagaza and Jane Ramutata, technical producer Sifin Dovu and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at MarshineAfrica or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Leonard Dembo from Zimbabwe with a song titled Chitekete.